Homily 16 of St. John Chrysostom on 1 Corinthians, Part 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Homily 16, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a drunkard, or a railer, or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. For since he had said, Ye have not rather mourned, that such an one should be taken away, and purge out the old leaven. And it was likely that they would surmise that it was their duty to avoid all fornicators. For if he that has sinned imparts some of his own mischief to those who have not sinned, much more is it meet to keep oneself away from those without. For if one ought not to spare a friend on account of such mischief arising from him, much less any others. And under this impression, it was probable that they would separate themselves from the fornicators among the Greeks also, and the matter thus turning out impossible, they would have taken it more to heart. He used this mode of correction, saying, I wrote unto you not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, using the word altogether, as if it were an acknowledged thing, that they might not think that he charged not this upon them, as being rather imperfect, and attempted to do it under the erroneous impression that they were perfect. He shows that this were even impossible to be done, though they wished it ever so much for it would be necessary to seek another world. Wherefore he added, Since he must needs go then out of the world, seest thou that he is no hard master, and that in his legislation he constantly guards not only what may be done, but also what may be easily done. For how is it possible, says he, for a man having care of a house and children and engaged in affairs of the city, or who is an artisan or a soldier, the greater part of mankind being Greeks, to avoid the unclean who are found everywhere. For by the fornicators of the world he means those who are among the Greeks. But now I have written unto you, if any brother be of this kind, with such an one know not to eat. Here also he glances at others who are living in wickedness. But how can one that is a brother be an idolater? As was the case once in regard to the Samaritans, who chose piety but by halves, and besides he is laying down his ground beforehand, for the discourse concerning things offered in sacrifice to idols, which after this he intends to handle, more covetous. For with these also he enters into conflict. Wherefore he said also, Why do ye not rather suffer wrong? Why do ye not endure to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud. Or a drunkard, for this also he lays to their charge, further on, as when he says, One is hungry, and another is drunken, and meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, or a railer, or an extortioner. For these two he had rebuked before. Next he adds also the reason why he forbids them not to mix with heathens of that character, implying that it is not only impossible, but also superfluous. Verse 12. For what have I to do to judge them that are without, calling the Christians and Greeks those within and those without, 
as also he sells elsewhere, he must also have a good report of them that are without. And in the epistle to the Thessalonians he speaks the same language, saying, Have no intercourse with him, that he may be put to shame. And count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here, however, he does not add the reason. Why? Because in the other case he wished to sue them, but in this not so, for the fault in this case and in that was not the same. But in the Thessalonians it was less, for there he is reproving indolence, but here fornication and other most grievous sins. And if anyone wished to go over to the Greeks, he hinders not him from eating with such persons. This too for the same reason. So also do we act, for our children and our brethren we leave nothing undone. But of strangers we do not make much account. How then? Did not Paul care for them that are without as well? Yes, he cared for them, but it was not till after they had received the gospel, and he had made them subject to the doctrine of Christ, that he laid down laws for them. But so long as they despised, it was superfluous to speak the precepts of Christ to those who knew not Christ himself. Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. For since he had said, What have I to do with judging those without? Lest anyone should think that these were left unpunished, there is another tribunal which he sets over them, and that a fearful one. And this he said, both to terrify those and console these, intimating also that this punishment which is for a season snatches them away from that which is undying and perpetual, which also he has plainly declared elsewhere, saying, But now being judged, we are chastened, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, take away from among yourselves that wicked person. He hath mentioned an expression found in the Old Testament, partly hinting that they too will be very great gainers in being freed, as it were, from some grievous plague, and partly to show that this kind of thing is no innovation, but even from the beginning thus it seemed good to the legislator that such as these should be cut off. But in that instance it was done with more severity, in this with more gentleness, on which account one might reasonably question why in that case he conceded that the sinner should be severely punished and stoned, but in the present instance not so, rather he leads him to repentance. Why then were the lines drawn in the former instance one way, and in the latter another way? For these two causes, one because these were being led into a greater trial, and needed greater long-suffering, the other and that truer one, because these by their impurity were more easily to be corrected, coming as they might to repentance but the others were likely to go on to greater wickedness. For if when they saw the first undergoing punishment, they persisted in the same things, had none at all being punished, much more would this have been their feeling. For which reason, in that dispensation, death is immediately inflicted upon the adulterer and the manslayer. But in this, if through repentance they are absolved, they have escaped the punishment. However, both here one may see some instances of heavier punishment, and in the Old Testament some less severe, in order that it may be signified in every way, that the covenants are akin to each other, 
and of one and the same lawgiver, and you may see the punishment following immediately both in that covenant and in this, and in both often after a long interval, nay, and oftentimes not even after a long interval, repentance alone being taken as satisfaction by the Almighty. Thus, on the one hand, in the Old Testament, David, who had committed adultery and murder, was saved by means of repentance, and in the new Ananias, who withdrew but a small portion of the price of the land, perished together with his wife. Now, if these instances are more frequent in the Old Testament than those of the contrary kind in the new, the difference of the persons produces the difference in the economy adapted in such matters. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against his brother, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? Here also he again makes his complaint upon acknowledged grounds, for in that other place he says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and in this place dare any one of you, from the very first outset, giving signs of his anger, and implying that the thing spoken of comes from a daring and lawless spirit. Now wherefore did he bring in, by the way of that discourse, about covetousness and about the duty of not going to law without the church? In fulfillment of his own rule, for it is a custom with him to set to right things as they fall in his way, just as when speaking about the tables which they used in common, he launched out into the discourse about the mysteries. So here, you see, since he had made mention of covetous brethren, burning with anxiety to correct those in sin, he brooks not exactly to observe order, but he again corrects the sin which had been introduced out of the regular course, and so returns to the former subject. Let us hear, then, what he also says about this. Dare any of you, having a matter with his brother, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? For a while he employs those personal terms to expose discredit and blame their proceedings, nor does he quite from the beginning subvert the custom of seeking judgment before the believers. But when he had stricken them down by many words, then he even takes away entirely all going to law. For in the first place, he says, if one must go to law, it were wrong to do so before the unjust. But you ought not to go to law at all. This, however, he adds afterwards. For the present, he thoroughly sifts the former subject, namely that they should not submit matters to external arbitration. For, says he, how can it be otherwise than absurd that one who is at variance with his friend should take his enemy to be a reconciler between them? And how can you avoid feeling shame and blushing when a Greek sits to judge a Christian? And if about private matters it is not right to go to law before Greeks, how shall we submit to their decisions about other things of greater importance? Observe, moreover, how he speaks. He says not before the unbelievers, but before the unjust, using the expression of which he had most particular need for the matter before him, in order to deter and keep them away, foreseeing that his discourse was about going to law, and those who are engaged in suits seek for nothing so much as that the judges should feel great interest about what is just. He takes this as a ground of dissuasion, all but saying, Where are you going? What are you doing, O man, bringing on yourself 
the contrary of what you wish, and in order to obtain justice, committing yourself to unjust men, and because it would have been intolerable to be told at once not to go to law, he did not immediately add this, but only changed the judges, bringing the party engaged in the trial from without into the church. Then, since it seemed easily open to contempt, I mean our being judged by those who were within, and especially at that time, for they were not, perhaps, competent to comprehend a point, nor were they such as the heathen judges, well skilled in laws and rhetoric, inasmuch as the greater part of them were uneducated men, mark how he makes them worthy of credit, first calling them saints. But seeing that this bore witness to purity of life, and not to accuracy in receiving instruction, observe how he orderly handles this part also, saying thus, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? How then canst thou, who art in that day to judge them, endure to be judged by them now? They will not indeed judge, taking their seat in person and demanding account. Yet they shall condemn. This at least he plainly said, And if the world is judged in you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He says not by you, but in you. Just as when he said, The queen of the cells shall rise up and condemn this generation, and the men of Nineveh shall arise and shall condemn this generation. For when, beholding the same sun, and sharing all the same things, we shall be found believers, but they unbelievers, they will not be able to take refuge in ignorance. For we shall accuse them, simply by the things which we have done, and many such ways of judgment will one find there. Then, that no one should think he speaks about other persons, mark how he generalizes his speech. And if the world is judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The thing is a disgrace to you, he says, and an unspeakable reproach. For since it was likely that they would be out of countenance at being judged by those that were within, Nay, saith he, on the contrary, the disgrace is when you are judged by those without, for those are the very small controversies, not these. Verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more than the things which pertain to this life? Some say that here the priests are darkly spoken of, but away with this. His speech is about demons. For had he been speaking about corrupt priests, he would have meant them above, when he said, The world is judged in you. For the scripture is wont to call evil men also the world. And he would not have said the same thing twice, nor would he, as if he was saying something of greater consequence, have put it down afterwards. But he speaks concerning those angels about whom Christ saith, Go ye into the fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And Paul his angels are transformed as ministers of righteousness. For when the very incorporeal powers shall be found inferior to us, who are clothed with flesh, they shall suffer heavier punishment. But if some should still contend that he speaks of priests, what sort of priests, let us ask, those whose walk in life has been worldly, of course. In what sense, then, does he say, we shall judge angels, much more things that relate to this life. He mentions the angels in contradistinction to things relating to this life. Likely enough, for they are removed from the need of these things, because of the superior excellence of their nature. 
verse 4. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church, wishing to instruct us as forcibly as possible that they ought not to commit themselves to those without, whatsoever the matter might chance to be, having raised what seemed to be an objection, he answers it in the first instance. For what he says is something like this. Perhaps someone will say, No one among you is wise, nor competent to pass sentence. All are contemptible. Now what follows? Even though none be wise, says he, I bid you entrust things to those who are of least weight. Verse 5. But this I speak to your shame. These are the words of one exposing their objection as being an idle pretext. And therefore he adds, Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not even one. Is the scarcity, says he, so great, so great the want of sensible persons among you? And what he subjoins strikes even still harder. For having said, it is so, that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, he adds, who shall be able to judge in the case of his brother? For when brother goes to law with brother, there is never any need of understanding and talent in the person who is meditating in the cause, the feeling, and relationship contributing greatly to the settlement of such a quarrel. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Do you observe with what effect he disparaged the judges, at first by calling them unjust, whereas here, to move shame, he calls them unbelievers? For surely it is extremely disgraceful if the priest could not be the author of reconciliation, even among brethren. But recourse must be had to those without, so that when he said, those who are least esteemed, his chief meaning was not, the church's outcasts, should be appointed as judges, but to find fault with them. For that it was proper to make reference to those who were able to decide, he has shown by saying, Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one? And with great impressiveness he stops their mouths and says, Even though there were not a single wise man, the hearing ought to have been left to you who are unwise, rather than those without should judge. For what else can it be than absurd, that whereas on a quarrel arising in a house, we call in no one from without, and feel ashamed if news get abroad among strangers, of what is going on within doors, where the church is, the treasure of the unutterable mysteries, there all things should be published without. Verse 6. But brother goeth the law with brother, and this before the unbelievers. The charge is twofold, both that he goeth the law and before the unbelievers. For if even the thing by itself, to go to law with the brother, be a fault, to do it also before aliens, what pardon does it admit of? Verse 7. Now therefore there is altogether a fault among you, that ye go to law one with another. Do you see for what place he reserved this point? and how he has cleared the discussion of it in good time. For I talk not yet, saith he, which injures or which is injured. Thus far the act itself of going to law brings each party under his censure, and in that respect one is not at all better than another. 
but whether one go to law justly or unjustly, that is quite another subject. Say not then, which did the wrong? For on this ground I at once condemn thee, even for the act of going to law. Now if being unable to bear a wrongdoer be a fault, what accusation can come up to the actual wrong? Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Verse 8. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Again, it is a twofold crime, perhaps even threefold or fourfold. One, not to know how to bear being wronged. Another, actually to do wrong. A third, to commit the settlement of these matters, even unto the unjust. And yet a fourth, that it should be so done to a brother. For men's offenses are not judged by the same rule, when they are committed against any chance person, and towards one's own member. For it must be a greater degree of stubbornness to make men venture upon that. In the other case, the nature of the thing is alone trampled on, but in this the quality of the person also. Having thus, you see, abashed them from arguments on general principles, before that, from the rewards proposed, he shuts up the exhortation with a threat, making his speech more preemptory, and saying, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor covetous, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. What sayest thou when discoursing about covetous persons? Have you brought in upon us so vast a crowd of lawless men? Yes, says he, but in doing this, I am not confusing my discourse, but going on in most regular order. For as when discoursing about the unclean, he made mention of all together, so again, on mentioning the covetous, he brings forward all, thus making his rebukes familiar to those who have such things on their conscience. For as often as mention is made of others, to hear continually of the punishment laid up for them, makes the reproof easy to be received, when it comes into conflict with their own sins. And so in the present instance he utters his threat, not at all as being conscious of their doing such things, nor as calling them to account, a thing which has special force to keep hold of the hearer, and to keep him from starting off, namely the discourse having no respect unto him, and being spoken indefinitely, and so wounding his conscience secretly. Be not deceived. Here he glances at certain who maintained what indeed most men assert now, that God is loving and good to man, and takes not vengeance upon our misdeeds. Let us not then be afraid, for never will he exact justice of any one for anything. And it is on account of these that he says, Be not deceived, for it belongs to the extreme of error and delusion. After depending on good to meet with the contrary, and to surmise such things about God, as even a man no one would think of, Wherefore saith the prophet in his person, Thou hast conceived iniquity, that I shall be like unto thee. I will reprove thee, and set before thy face thine iniquities. And Paul here, be not deceived, neither fornicators, he puts the one that was already condemned, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor drunkards, nor revilers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
many have laid hold of this place as extremely severe since he places the drunkard and the reviler with the adulterer and the abominable and the abuser of himself with mankind and yet the offences are not equal how then is the award of punishment the same what shall we say then first that drunkenness is no small thing nor reviling seeing that christ himself delivered over to hell him that called his brother fool and often that sin has brought forth death again the jewish people too committed the greatest of their sins through drunkenness in the next place it is not of punishment that he is so far discoursing but of falling away from the kingdom now from the kingdom both the one and the other are equally thrust out but whether in hell they will find any difference it belongs not to this present occasion to inquire for that subject is not within our purpose just now verse eleven and such were some of you but ye are washed but ye are sanctified in a way to abash them exceedingly he adds this as if he said consider from what evils god hath delivered you how great an experiment and demonstration of loving-kindness he hath afforded you he hath not limited his redemption to mere deliverance but hath greatly extended the benefit for he also hath made thee clean was this then all nay but he hath also sanctified nor even is this all he hath also justified yet even bare deliverance from our sins were a great gift but now he hath filled thee also with countless blessings and this he hath done in the name of our lord jesus christ not in this name or in that yea also in the spirit of our god knowing therefore these things beloved and bearing in mind the greatness of the blessing which hath been wrought let us both continue to live soberly being pure from all things that have been enumerated and let us avoid the tribunals which are in the forums of the gentiles and the noble birth which god hath freely given us the same let us preserve to the end for think how full of shame it is that a greek should take his seat and deal out justice to thee but you will say what if he that is within judge contrary to the law why should he tell me for i would know by what kind of laws the greek administers justice and by what the christian is it not quite plain that the laws of men are the rule of the greek but those of the church of the christian surely then with the latter there is greater chance of justice seeing that these laws are even sent from heaven for in regard to those without besides what has been said there are many other things also to suspect talent in speakers and corruption in magistrates and many other things which are the ruin of justice but with us nothing of this sort what then you will say if the adversary be one in high place well for this reason more than all one ought to go to law in christian courts for in the courts without he will get the better of you at all events but what if he acquiesce not but both despise those within and forcibly drag the cause out better were it to submit willingly to what you are likely to endure by compulsion and not go to law that thou mayest have also a reward for if any one will go to law with thee and take away thy coat thou shalt let him have thy cloak also 
and agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him and why need i speak of our rules for even the pleaders in the heathen courts very often tell us this saying it were better to make up matters out of court but o wealth or rather o the absurd love of wealth it subverts all things and casts them down and all things are to the many an idle tale and fables because of money now that those who give trouble to courts of law should be worldly men is no marvel but that many of those who have bid farewell to the world should do the very same this is a thing from which all pardon is cut off for if you chose to see how far you should keep from this sort of need i mean that of the tribunals by the rule of scripture and to learn for whom the laws are appointed hear what paul saith for a righteous man a law is not made but for the lawless and insubordinate and if he saith these things about the mosaic law much more about the laws of the heathen now then if you commit injustice it is plain that you cannot be just but if you are injured and bear it for this is a special mark of a just man you have no need of the laws which are without how then say you shall i be able to bear it when injured and yet christ hath commanded something even more than this for not only hath he commanded you when injured to bear it but even to give abundantly more to the wrongdoer and in your zeal for suffering ill to surpass his eagerness for doing it for he said not to him that will sue thee at law and take away thy coat give thy coat but together with that give also thy cloak for i bid you overcome him saith he by suffering not by doing evil for this is the certain and splendid victory wherefore also paul goes on to say now then it is altogether a discomfiture to you that ye have judgments one with another and wherefore do ye not suffer the wrong for that the injured person overcomes rather than he who cannot endure being injured this i will make evident to you he that cannot endure injury though he force the other into court though he gain the verdict yet is he then most of all defeated for that which he would not he hath suffered and that the adversary hath compelled him both to feel pain and to incur a lawsuit for what is it to the point that you have prevailed and what that you have recovered all the money you have in the meanwhile borne what you did not desire having been compelled to decide the matter by law but if you endured the injustice you overcome deprived indeed of the money but not at all of the victory which is annexed to such self-command for the other had no power to oblige you to do what you did not like and to show that this is true tell me which conquered the envious one or he who lay upon the dunghill which was defeated job who is stripped of all or the devil who stripped him of all evidently the devil who stripped him of all whom do we admire for the victory the devil that smote or job that was stricken clearly job and yet he could not retain his perishing wealth nor save his children why speak i of riches and children he could not ensure to himself bodily health 
yet nevertheless this is the conqueror he that lost all that he had his riches indeed he could not keep but his piety he kept with all strictness but his children when perishing he could not help and what then since what happened both made them more glorious and besides this was the mean whereby he protected himself against the despiteful usage now had he not suffered ill and been wronged of the devil he would not have gained that signal victory had it been an evil thing to suffer wrong god would not have enjoined it upon us for god enjoineth not evil things what know ye not that he is the god of glory that it could not be his will to encompass us with shame and ridicule and loss but to introduce us to the contrary of these therefore he commands us to suffer wrong and doth all to withdraw us from worldly things and to convince us what is glory and what shame what loss and what gain but it is hard to suffer wrong and be spitefully entreated nay o man it is not it is not hard how long will thy heart be fluttering about things present for god you may be sure would not have commanded this had it been hard just consider the wrongdoer goes his way with the money but with an evil conscience beside the receiver of the wrong defrauded indeed of some money but enriched with confidence towards god an acquisition more valuable than countless treasures knowing these things therefore let us of our free choice go on strict principles and not be like the unwise who think that they are then not wronged when their suffering wrong is the result of a trial but quite the contrary that is the greatest harm and so in every case when we exercise self-restraint in these matters not willingly but after being worsted in that other quarter for it is no advantage that a man defeated in a trial endures it for it becomes thenceforth a matter of necessity what then is the splendid victory when thou lookest down on it when thou refusest to go to law how say you have i been stripped of everything saith one and do you bid me keep silent have i been shamefully used and do you exhort me to bear it meekly and how shall i be able nay but it is most easy if thou wilt look up unto heaven if thou wilt behold the beauty that is in sight and whither god hath promised to receive thee if thou bear wrong nobly do this then and looking up unto the heaven think that thou art made like unto him that sitteth there upon the cherubim for he also was injured and he bore it he was reproached and avenged not himself and was spit upon yet he asserted not his cause nay he made return in the contrary kind to those who did such things even in benefits without number and he hath commanded us to be imitators of him consider that thou camest naked out of thy mother's womb and that naked both thou and he that hath done thee wrong shall depart rather he for his part with innumerable wounds breeding worms consider that things present are but for a season count over the tombs of thine ancestors acquaint thyself accurately with past events and thou shalt see that the wrongdoer hath made thee stronger for his own affection he hath aggravated his covetousness i mean but yours 
he hath alleviated, taking away the food of the beast. And besides all this, he has set you free from cares, agony, envy of informers, trouble, worry, perpetual fear, and the foul mass of evils he hath heaped upon his own head. What then, saith one, if I have to struggle with hunger? Thou endurest this with Paul, who saith, Even at this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked. But he did it, you will say, for God's sake. Do thou it also for God's sake, for when thou obtainest from avenging, thou dost so for God's sake. But he that wronged me takes his pleasure with the wealthy, yea, rather with the devil. But be you crowned together with Paul. Therefore fear not hunger, for the Lord will not kill with hunger the souls of the righteous. And again another saith, Cast upon the Lord thy care, and he will nourish thee. For if the sparrows of the field are nourished by him, how shall he not nourish thee? Now let us not be of little faith, nor of little soul, O my beloved. For he who hath promised the kingdom of heaven and such great blessings, how shall he not give things present? Let us not covet superfluous things, but let us keep to sufficiency, and we shall always be rich. Let shelter be what we seek and food, and we shall obtain all things, both there and such as are far greater. But if you are still grieving and bowing yourself down, I should like to show you the soul of the wrongdoer after his victory, how it is become ashes, for truly sin is that kind of thing. While it is being committed, it affords a certain pleasure. But when it is finished, then the trifling pleasure is gone. One knows not how, and in its place comes dejection. And this is our feeling when we do hurt to any. Afterwards, at any rate, we condemn ourselves. So also, when we overreach, we have pleasure. But afterwards, we are stung by conscience. Seest thou in any one's possession some poor man's house? Weep not for him that is spoiled, but for the spoiler. For he has not inflicted, but sustained an evil. For he hath robbed the other of things present, but himself he hath cast out of the blessings which cannot be uttered. For if he who giveth not to the poor shall go away into hell, what shall he suffer who takes the goods of the poor? Yet saith one, Where is the gain if I suffer ill? Indeed, the gain is great, for not of the punishment of him that hath done thee harm doth God frame a compensation for thee, since that would be no great thing. For what great good is it if I suffer ill and he suffer ill? And yet I know of many who consider this the greatest comfort, and who think they have got all back again, when they see those who had insulted him undergoing punishment. But God doth not limit his recompense to these. Wouldst thou then desire to know in earnest how great are the blessings which await thee? He openeth for thee the whole heaven. He maketh thee a fellow citizen with the saints. He fits thee to bear a part in their choir. From sins he absolveth. With righteousness he crowneth. For if such as forgive offenders shall obtain forgiveness, those who not only forgive, but who also give largely to boot, what blessings shall they not inherit? Therefore, bear it not with a poor spirit, 
but even pray for him that injured thee. It is for thyself that thou doest this. Hath he taken thy money? Well, he took thy sins too, which was the case with Naaman and Gehazi. How much wealth wouldest thou not give to have thine iniquities forgiven thee? This, believe me, is the case now. For if thou endure nobly and curse not, thou hast bound on thee a glorious crown. It is not my word, but thou hast heard Christ speaking. Pray for those that despitefully use you, and consider the reward how great, that ye may be like your Father which is in the heavens. So then you have been deprived of nothing, yea, you have been a gainer, you have received no wrong, rather you have been crowned, and that you are become better disciplined in soul, and made like to God, are set free from the care of money, are made possessor of the kingdom of heaven. All these things, therefore, taking into account, let us restrain ourselves in injuries, beloved, in order that we may both be freed from the tumult of this present life, and cast out all unprofitable sadness of spirit, and may obtain the joy to come through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now, henceforth, and forever and ever. Amen. End of homily 16.